This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about the Rosenberg Adam spy case. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in June 1953 for the crime of conspiracy to commit espionage. They left behind two young sons. The execution was shocking at the time and still is, especially since the U.S. government had not executed a woman in nearly 100 years and never in peacetime. Now, 70 years after the trial, there's a really good new book out about Ethel. It's called Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. The author is Anne Seba. She's a former foreign correspondent for Reuters and an award-winning biographer. Her books include Les Parisiennes, about French women under the Nazi occupation. She's also a senior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. She lives in London, but we reached her today on Crete. Anne Seba, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. First question, how come you're on Crete and we're not? <laughs> well, I'm very sorry about that, um, but I have to be there for, for reasons I, I won't bore you with. It's actually a wonderful place to work, and I've brought a lot of my Rosenberg books out here and done much of the research and the writing while I've been here. Uh, let's start with what historians now know about the Rosenbergs. Julius was a spy for Russia during World War II, but he did not give them the secret of the atom bomb. They had real atomic scientists at Los Alamos helping with that. And Ethel was innocent. She was framed by the FBI with the help of her brother, David Greenglass. The review of your book in the London Review of Books begins, no one thought Ethel would be executed. Is that true? I think that is true. You have the Deputy Attorney General who says at the end, she called our bluff. And J. Edgar Hoover himself, who was so keen to try and get both of the Rosenbergs to name names, realized, as we'd say today, the optics of killing a woman, a mother, really wouldn't look good. And he tried somehow not to execute Ethel, but she was not prepared to name names and she was not prepared to confess. What could she confess to? Why is it important today to understand Ethel's motivation? Why did she think it was a good thing to support the Soviet Union during World War II and, and into the early 50s? Because we're talking here, of course, about Stalin and Stalinism. Yes, I, I don't make any bones about the story. Look, it's really simple. As you said, we now know Julius was a spy. He was a spy ring recruiter and he was involved in passing secret information. Ethel was his wife. She was certainly part of the conspiracy in the sense that she knew and she probably approved, but it's not a crime to know something. And I think that's why it's really interesting that the government knew all along the case against Ethel was weak, shaky at best, she was arrested and charged so that she could be used as a lever against Julius. It was hoped because they had this secret information and we now know that that was 
called Venona, the Venona decrypts, but they couldn't, the, the government and the FBI could not release what was known in the Venona decrypts because they hoped to use it subsequently. So they were acting with one hand tied behind their back and they ultimately concluded that actually um, they had to go through with this, but it matters. The resonance is because when a government willingly decides that the life of a citizen is expendable, then that's something that we all need to be concerned about. And, and Ethel was used, she was used as a pawn, as a lever, and the government knew that they did not have strong evidence against her. In many ways, Ethel was completely ordinary, daughter of immigrants, a poor Jew growing up in the 30s on the Lower East Side. But in some ways, she was extraordinary. Let's start with her singing voice. Well, I think she was extraordinary because she grew up in such poverty with no encouragement from her family and really was single-minded in pursuing what she enjoyed, which was singing and acting. So her mother decided that she was actually a snob because she liked singing Italian arias and she was interested in Russian peasants. And the, her, her mother, Tessie Greenglass, Ethel's maiden name was Greenglass, never encouraged her in any of this, but Ethel pursued these aims nonetheless. I think she was extraordinary because everything she did, she put herself into wholeheartedly. So when she became involved in a strike in 1935, and by then she was a communist, she was instrumental in almost leading the strike and discovered at that point that actually she could achieve something, she, she could do something important. So her communism, it should be said, was twofold. On, uh, in, in the first place, she was an idealist. She believed in improving a lot of impoverished people like herself on the Lower East Side. But it was also a way to beat fascism. And in 1936, that's really the crucial year Ethel and Julius had friends who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And so she threw herself wholeheartedly into her communism at that point. Later on, when she became a mother in wartime, she decided that being a good mother and a better mother than her own had been was very, very important. So she went to mothering classes. She tried to be the best mother that she could be. She thought that everything was discoverable through books. And as many of us may know, our children don't always respond to what we we read in books. So, you know, she was thrown off course. She wasn't um, particularly strong in a health sense. She was born with scoliosis, a back problem, and that gave her migraines. So um, she was extraordinary to that extent. And you have a wonderful phrase, the Ethelness of Ethel. Explain exactly what that meant in this context. Well, I think if you look at her determination to be a good mother, for example, she would get on the floor and play with her children. She encouraged them to call her by her first name. And many of the other mothers where she lived decided that she was actually peculiar. But, um, you know, this wasn't a normal way to behave if, if you had a play date. I think her single-mindedness, which she learnt through these 
other aspects of growing up. When she was in prison in her early 30s, she was only 37 when she was electrocuted. And I think this determination, I talk about the ethelness as a work in progress, because I think she was learning how to write. Some of her letters from prison are extraordinarily moving, and she was reading a lot and trying to improve her writing. I've been fortunate to meet the child psychologist who helped her with Michael, her first son, who really was a challenge. And the psychotherapist believes that if Ethel had lived longer, she probably would have trained herself as a psychotherapist. So I talk about the Ethelness as a work in progress. I think she was a clever girl. She skipped a year at school and she was determined to try and make something of her life. And as we all know, that didn't work out. But I think she would have done had she lived. The person who did the most to get her executed was her brother, David Greenglass. He was spying for the Soviets at Los Alamos, and he tried to get the Russians the secret of the A-bomb, but the sketches that he, uh, what, six years later said that he sent are pathetically simple and, and useless. The most important thing he said, he took back in a 2001 interview when he admitted he had lied on the witness stand when he said that Ethel typed the key documents. How could he send his own sister to the electric chair? Well, the role of Ethel's younger brother, seven years younger, David Greenglass, really is why this is such a family tragedy, a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, really. But um, let's go back to the charge, first of all, because you, you said in your introduction that Ethel was innocent. I actually don't find the words innocent and guilty particularly helpful because they're such binary terms. So they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. And that's because conspiracy is almost impossible to disprove in this case. Of course, Ethel, having a close relationship with her husband, Julius, would have talked to him. And really, it's clear that Ethel knew what Julius was doing. And as I say, probably approved of it. It's the second half of the charge that I take issue with espionage. There is no evidence that Ethel was involved in spying. The KGB did not have a code name for her. Nobody believes that the KGB was dealing with her directly. So the government has a problem, or the judiciary at any rate, the, the judge and the jury, how are they going to prove Ethel and Julius guilty. And here's where these multiple miscarriages of justice come into the trial. And that's really what I think my book is about. If, if there's one message, it's about the importance of the rule of law, which was flagrantly disregarded in this case. And so the judge, even though he knows that they're being tried for conspiracy to commit espionage, repeatedly accuses them of treason. They were not being charged for treason. They couldn't be because it, it was during wartime and also because the rules in a case of treason are quite different. You have to provide two witnesses to any overt act. And yet both the prosecution and the judge frequently use this word treason. So the jury felt that they were dealing with a case of treason. But back to David. So there is no 
overt act other than what David comes up with, which is perjury. He invents a story to provide an overt act to show that his sister was guilty. Why does he do it? Because it's a plea bargain. His own wife, Ruth, is never indicted and he serves a much lesser term in the event he's released after about um, nine and a half years. What David says, and we now know this is invented because his grand jury testimony has been released and he's done, he did interviews when he came out of prison. He only died in, in 2014. So the grand jury testimony was released in 2015. And the story that David invents, the perjury that sends his sister to her death is that he saw Ethel type up the notes that he brought back from Los Alamos. And he admitted afterwards that actually he couldn't remember who did the typing, maybe nobody did the typing, or maybe his own wife had done it. Now, the typewriter is absolutely key to this whole evidence. And that's why it, it's David's perjury that is the key evidence. The last two years of Ethel's life at Sing Sing, she spent in solitary confinement. Today, we're told there are more than 80,000 men, women, and children held in solitary confinement in prisons in the United States, some for years, some have been there for decades. There's a campaign now to end solitary con confinement. What did you learn about solitary from Ethel's letters? How extraordinarily resilient she was. I mean, she did sink into a period of depression. And amazingly, at one point, she was allowed to see her, her own psycho, her own psychiatrist came to visit her. I didn't think he was much help. Her husband was brought occasionally in a cage and sat outside. What I learned about Ethel, as I say, is partly the resilience and, and the courage. Ethel was a brave woman who came up against incredible forces of history that she could not possibly overcome. I think it also meant that she had great difficulty in fighting a good defense because her time was spent either worrying about the sons and, and they had this joint defense. So there simply was not enough time to think clearly, but the letters to her sons are remarkably evocative of how she tried to prepare them for a life when she recognized she wouldn't be there. And I think being in solitary confinement was what ultimately persuaded her that the only legacy she could leave them, obviously there was nothing material she could leave them. So the only legacy as she saw it was loyalty. And she believed that loyalty to Julius trumped betrayal, which is what she saw all around her, and particularly the betrayal of her mother and her brother, the betrayal of the Greenglass family. And, and I think that being in solitary gave her that time where she decided there was no other way out. So at the time of the executions, their son Michael was 10, Robbie was six, that's always the worst part of it. I have friends who say, if I were forced to choose between my children and my political values, I'd choose my children. You've told us what Ethel's thinking about this was. How do you understand Ethel's choice? 
I don't think she had a choice. I think she was completely trapped. How on earth could she have lived with her sons if she had confessed to something that she had not been an active part of, which would have sent her husband to his death? Would her sons have valued her, respected her, been able to live with her? No. And I think she understood that very clearly. One more question. This story is so terrible, it's kind of unbearable, but you spent years with it, researching it and writing about it. What was that like for you? How did you do it? Well, um, I think it's important to try and put historical perspective to all of this. I think we know communism is a discredited philosophy today, but it still needs to be understood. You know, of course you can say with hindsight that Ethel was foolish to stick with the Communist Party after the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Of course that's easy to see now, but as a historian you need to understand what the pressures were at the time. You need to understand why in the 19, late 1940s America was so terrified of Russia having an atomic bomb, which they thought Russia wouldn't have for at least five years. So make the comparison between Klaus Fuchs, who was the beginning of how all this unraveled. He was a real spy, a real physicist who passed on important information to the Soviet Union. And the British arrested him very quietly. They didn't make a big fuss about it. They gave him 14 years, which was the maximum in England for espionage, and he served nine and a half. And compare that and how, of course, the Klaus Fuchs case unraveled, leading to Harry Gold. Harry Gold, the courier, led to Green Glass. And how when, when the Americans discovered that Russia had exploded an atomic bomb, they were absolutely terrified and they made as much noise as possible and as much publicity as possible when they eventually arrested Julius and Ethel because they believed that this would make them look strong. And, and of course, it's political. It's, it's tied up with the Republicans wanting to get back into power. And, and one needs to understand this real fear and not just brush it off as McCarthyism. Of course, it is that. But the terror that, you know, children might be being sent to shelters if Russia really was going to explode a bomb. So I, I think the historical background makes it so important. And of course, the individual story is is what sheds light on, on the historical background. And Seba, her book is Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. It's really good. And thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Okay.